Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. One in five. That's the number of people with disabilities in the United States today. Today on How We Talk About, Jen and I speak with Dori Kirshner, Executive Director of Matan, a Jewish nonprofit working towards inclusive classrooms, communal, and spiritual aspects of Jewish life. How We Talk About is a professional development podcast for educators who are teaching Jewish things in Jewish schools. We're your hosts, Aaron Beezer and Jen Stern-Granowitz. Jewish educators from New York City. Hey, Jen. Today we're going to talk about how we talk about ability. Why we need to do an episode about ability. And when we say ability, what do we mean? We mean inclusion of human beings and a recognition and affirmation of the diverse ways in which human beings learn and engage with the world around them. Many of our institutions, including the ones that you and I both work at, have this express commitment that we are open to all Jews, like we're warm and welcoming, right? And we can talk about being open to Jews and who is a Jew another time, and we have and we will. But a lot of our institutions have a commitment to also being accessible, right? Like Park Avenue has a saying like this, right? So yes, we do. Our rabbis and leadership use a phrase of meet people where they are. And so we not only talk the talk about inclusion with our sayings, but we also really try to walk the walk. And so for one example, during services or rabbis, when asking people to rise for prayers, they now started to add, if you are able to, which I know kind of sounds minor, but it's a really big and important shift in the way I speak about ability and inclusion at the synagogue. Yeah, I think that's a really great example of a small shift in language that an able-bodied person, right? Someone like you or me, who has use, full use of our legs, would have completely missed how exclusionary that is because of the privilege that those of us who don't need to use a wheelchair for mobility have, and we move through the world, you and I, I mean, that is primarily designed for able-bodied people. I also have some really beautiful memories that I share particularly with Michelle Steinhardt, who is the Director of Inclusion at Temple Israel Center, who to me is a gold standard in this work and how to make our communities more accessible. I'm remembering in particular a sensory friendly room we used to set up during the Purim Carnival, for example. Purim, a very overwhelming, high intensity, sensory community program that can be really overwhelming for certain types of kids. And so providing that kind of accessibility really makes or breaks that afternoon for any number of families. Yes, we've actually done something really similar at Park Avenue Synagogue. We have what we call the Quiet Carnival, which I imagine was probably modeled after Temple Israel Center. So thank you to you and to Michelle Steiner. Um, and when thinking about children and their Jewish education, I've had many conversations with parents that often begin something like, well, my child goes to a school that's focused on their special needs. So sort of like how or why would I send them to a quote unquote mainstream Hebrew school? 
And as a person, an educator, an administrator, I value wanting all kids to have a space in our congregational school and have each child feel successful. And I think we've worked very intentionally, both as a synagogue and a congregational school and work closely with Matan and our podcast guest for today on this endeavor. And while I'm really looking forward to this discussion today, I think it's because it's a really, really important one. I also want to acknowledge that I'm not sure I always have the right language on how to talk about ability. So I think this is a value that we have. I think oftentimes we have to provide educators with more resources and more strategies to be able to get there. Totally agree. And hopefully today's episode will be a resource to to those educators. So our, our guest today is an expert in this field. Dora, you have served as Matan's executive director since May of 2009. And under your leadership, Matan has shifted from a local direct service organization in the New York metro area to one which significantly impacts the field of Jewish disability inclusion across North America by training communal leaders and educators, creating original curricula, and conducting community consultations, Matan is building the capacity of individuals and communities to be systemically and holistically inclusive of all of its members. And I've had the privilege to learn directly from you, Dory, and all of your colleagues at Matan, and we're so glad to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really, really honored to be here and have this conversation with you too. What does the origin, Dory, of Matan as an organization help us understand about the Jewish community and ability? So I really love this question because Judaism in and of itself is thousands of years old. There is a clear understanding that we have to reach and teach each child according to his, her, their way, and that it is an obligation of the community to educate. It's just, it's a non-negotiable. It doesn't say only for those who are able, only for those who don't need supports. It literally is a mandate. It's a moral, ethical, religious, should we say, mandate. And so whereas public schools are literally mandated to figure out how best to support each child for many, too many years, it seemed um, like a little bit more of a choice of whether or not we were going to choose to build in supports. Truly, I think the greatest need that hopefully Matan has played a part in is really, really opening up the communal awareness to understand that when you say no to an individual or a family, it's not just no, you cannot participate in this day school program, or you can't matriculate into this congregational school um, in preparation for bar bat mitzvah, the way it is perceived is a rejection by one's community. And those experiences, unfortunately, were all too common around the time that Matan was getting started. A handful of women were aware that this was not a few isolated instances. It was a pervasive trend. So Matan and other organizations really came into being about two decades ago in the hopes that we could change literally the way that our community looks at, accepts, and supports all people who deserved a Jewish education There's been tremendous growth, training opportunities. The one thing that I think we all still need is just 
shifting the mindset of the general community so that this is an important you know, value that is lived by everyone, whether you're an educational leader, whether you're in the trenches, whether you're a parent, whether you're a parent of a child who learns differently, it doesn't matter. We are all responsible for one another. And until we get to that tipping point, we still have work to do. What is inclusion? What does it mean and what does it look like? And why is it important in educational settings to have inclusion? There's this phrase that I've seen kicked around on social media that says something like, diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. Real inclusion is a symbiotic relationship, which means are people getting what they need in order to be heard and supported and comfortable and present and active? And are the people that are part of what, whatever that it is, whatever that opportunity is, are they consciously going out of their way to make sure that all voices are heard? And sometimes, you know, we, we have to expand our definitions of participation and communication and engagement and really, really make sure that we're always trying our best to sort of partner, listen to what it is that people really need in order to make the environment as open and accessible as can be so that all members are present. If there are people that are left out and not at the table or part of the, the communal conversation, then we're, we're not really, we can't talk about the Jewish community. It means that we're still missing a, a large, significant part. What is the right language? What's affirming language? Like, do we say a child is like normal versus typical? This like neurotypical? Does a child have learning needs? They have special needs? Like, what are the right words that we should be saying? The right words. Language is almost like fashion, and there are trends, and they go in and they go out, and sometimes they come back, and sometimes we're like really grateful they're not back. When I first um, was learning about these sorts of things in graduate school, there was this concept of person-first language, that you talk about the woman with autism, the, the boy with dyslexia, or who has dyslexia, you know, et cetera. And I have to say that, again, there have been trends and um, movements and, um, you know, even splintering and varying opinions within, you know, there's not one autistic community, there are multiple autistic communities, but it is very, very, very clear that people as they are on their journeys as individuals, they themselves end up selecting how they like to be referred, kind of like gender pronouns or something, you know, something very equivalent. So what I would say about language in general, because again, there are trends and we can't, it's really hard to keep up with. It's very, very important that at the very least, the way that we express ourselves hopefully conveys an intention to get it right, 
we're, we're always probably going to make mistakes and, you know, and say something that might rub somebody the wrong way. What I end up doing is I, I say, I'm not sure if you prefer that, you know, and then give some examples. Sometimes people will tell you and other times maybe they say, whatever, whatever. I know that you have the best of intentions in asking this question. So I'm going to use that as a segue to talk about how you talk to people and parents being in the relationship with them is first and foremost. I would tell educators in particular that the best thing you can do is to say, thank you so much for letting me know that you're concerned about Aaron's dyslexia. I know what dyslexia is, but I don't have a lot of experience with it. And I would love your help in learning more about how we can best support him. Maybe if you have some ideas about what might work really well in, in our setting versus what won't, you know, cause you probably have experience in other settings and, or if there are other people in Aaron's life who would be really good guides and you would like me to speak with them that have some of those pointers because they may know him in a different way than you know him as a parent. So I think the best thing you can do is be that open communicative partner and make it very clear that though you do not have, you know, a master's in language-based disorders, your goal is to support and make as maximal the experience as is possible. And that really has to be done in partnership. And it begins with saying, I don't know everything and communicating that you want to do better than what you naturally have at your disposal. Okay. So I'm just going to read a little bit from your website. Matan enables Jewish professionals, communities, and families to create and sustain inclusive settings in educational, communal, and spiritual aspects of Jewish life. So I'm going to ask you, what does this look like practically in the classroom? What are ways that individual educators can begin to implement changes tomorrow in their own classrooms? Little things, big things. What do you think? I would encourage everyone to also potentially continue this conversation. Work in this area is never done, but I'm happy to provide a few tips, particularly in light of the hybrid learning that we've all been doing. The environment really changed during this time and it allowed certain people to thrive and it really did not allow for accessibility for other people. And so I just wanted to name that because the same thing exists when we're in person. There are certain people who need certain things in an in-person setting that we don't always have our classroom set up for. So it's sort of like the pandemic is a great excuse to analyze both settings. The more that you know about your students and really, really accept that yoke of responsibility, like that it's your job as an educator to figure out kind of like how everyone is going to thrive, not at all times, but really try to crack the code and that that's part of your job. The best thing you can do is to constantly communicate with them about them and about what is of interest to them and what their preferences are. Because even little kids will show you with their bodies that they love to jump around or they love to be a little bit more sedate. There is a real need for all of us 
to sort of expand our expectations about the duration that we're demanding our students sit or do a particular activity. And then there, there are lots of different ways to build in either movement, the change in environment, the shifting of furniture, desks where people can stand, literally they don't have to sit, preferential seating, making choices available and being thoughtful about who may need what. Most people, not just children, most people really like a sense of, let's call it a roadmap. What we're doing first, what we're doing second, what we're doing next, and a sense of, well, how much time are we going to spend doing this thing, that thing, the other thing? Putting up a schedule, let's say, both written and a visual cue or icon is really helpful, even for people who are literate. You know, it's like, it's just lots of people taking information very differently. Meredith England or Polsky always says special education is just really good education. So I think a lot of times we tend to just say things and assume that everyone's going to get it. And we can't, we have to stop assuming and really need to start to think about how can I make sure that I'm communicating what I need to communicate in multiple ways so that multiple learners can take that information in. We all have strengths, we all have challenges, and we can all support each other. Speaking that way and making that a communal norm is going to go much further than almost anything else you can do. When I was a classroom teacher, my greatest success was when instead of turning to me, what, what's, what do we do now? What are we supposed to be doing? When is lunch? You know, et cetera, they would turn to each other. That was success for me. And I think that that's something that as educators, we, we need to do because all of us at some point will need something. And I think that that's a value to internalize for life. You're saying that we have these communities where we all are recognizing and acknowledging that we all learn differently. What do you say when someone says something like, they have a fidget toy and I want one, or they're noticing that there's someone with some behaviors that are very different or look different, and they're saying, I see that they look different from me. What do you say? It is very important to acknowledge that difference is normal. I'll use this as an example. I wear glasses. I have to at this stage of my life. I did this once. I basically walked in and I said, okay, this is my prescription. I got glasses for every single person in the class. And you all have the prescription that I have. And they put on the readers and realized that it doesn't work for them. The communication that's most needed at that point is my goal is to recognize that we all need different things. I want you to have what you need. So if you're telling me that you think you would benefit from having a fidget toy, then let's try it. You know, I'm willing to try it because maybe it would help you. And most of the time they might try it. And if it doesn't, if it's not a value add, if it's not a support, they will probably put it to the side or start throwing it, which is also inappropriate. (laughs) And you have to deal with that. There's this expression about you don't treat people equally, you treat them fairly. And so, you know, not everyone needs the exact same thing, but your job and your job as a community 
is to make sure that they get what they need. There are times when kids in a very innocent way say things when they notice differences. And I would highly discourage not talking about it. What I I would do is try to talk about it, but not make someone like an object at that point, but really, really give kids the opportunity to have a space where they can ask questions. Kids are our best teachers for how to handle it in a very matter of fact kind of way, but it is never okay to, you know, point something out like that in a mean way. So what has the pandemic taught us about differences in learning needs? What do you think has been enhanced and what has been more challenging? And what are the, what should we keep? Or what are the lessons that we've learned that we can use post-pandemic going into a new world? For some people, the ability to have the comfort of a home setting or, you know, a quieter setting without being surrounded by lots of distractions and other people gave people either more confidence or more ability to focus. There are people that constantly were able to turn off their camera and really participate because there are plenty of people in the world that it's hard to make eye contact and talk and think and take notes and you know all those things that you're sort of expected to do when you're in person. And so by, by having the ability to turn a camera off and have your focus maybe just be on one or two um, activities in order to, to be a part of something is great. There were lots of people who felt that captioning, like being able to see the actual words or watch um, somebody signing, all those things had to be taken into consideration in a different way than ever before, because we couldn't be together. Sending materials in advance, sending a schedule in advance, sending things for people to read in order to participate in advance is something that, in my opinion, we should never let go of. You know, that sort of, in education, they call it pre-teaching, right? Why shouldn't you, if we all go back to in-person, why shouldn't you be sending things like that and not expect everyone in the moment, whether it's an adult education class or, you know, everything in between, like I was saying, people, some people benefit from reviewing something before they're asked to weigh in on it. They need more time than what's allowed in, you know, a a 40 minute class to, to really delve into something. It's not that it worked well for everyone. The social emotional piece, that connection that I was saying, that's so vital to knowing more about how best to support your students is much harder in a virtual space. So building in check-ins and chats that are private or phone calls where people give feedback, this is working for me, this is not. Asking and communicating and getting that feedback loop is going to make all the difference. Well, there's so much that we have learned from you, Dory, and continue to both from you and all of your colleagues at Matan. Um, And so one thing we like to do uh, with our listeners to wrap up our time together is to have you share a reflection question so we can continue our learning after we've um, finished listening. So if you could share your reflection question with us today. So I'm going to, if it's okay, I'm going to take the opportunity to pose two reflection questions because I feel like there are educators. And then there are lots of 
of other people, you know, that may benefit from thinking about inclusion in a different way. So for teachers and educators, people that are really at the forefront of making inclusion normative, making neurodiversity open, talked about, um, something that we're always working towards, I would say, am I doing everything that I can to partner with my students and their families um, in order to make sure that everyone is really getting what he, she, or they need. So that's piece number one. And for the rest of us, what are you doing? What Ask yourself, what am I doing in order to really make inclusion a reality, particularly when I am in Jewish communal settings and environments and opportunities? Am I really thinking about this and stretching myself to become much more a part of the solution. I have this expression that I say a lot. I say, inclusion is inclusion is inclusion. Because I feel like there are plenty of places that have gotten amazing, amazing at supporting interfaith families, but they haven't necessarily tackled the accessibility issues. Or they've put a lot of thought and support into LGBTQ issues, but they haven't necessarily thought about multicultural diversity um, and people of color? And do, do people who are single moms by choice feel comfortable? Always be asking who isn't here. There's always more inclusion to be done. Um, I have a lot of takeaways today. First of all, thank you so much, Dory, for joining us. This was so inspiring and helpful. And we're really happy to have you with us. For me, I think the most important takeaway from this conversation is the language of mandate that you taught us, right? This is a mandate that our institutions have. Shifting our thinking about it from chesed, like this is a kindness, this is a nice thing that we do, to mitzvah, right? To obligation. Our communities are obligated to educate every single child, every single person in our community. There's an obligation there. It's not like something that we think about once a year on, you know, mitzvah day, like how can we include those folks with special needs. This is something that we need to do every single day in our communities and, and shifting that from not something nice that we think to do every once in a while, but something that we have to do as, as part of our daily work. Uh, that was really powerful. Thank you for that. So one word I wrote down while Dara was talking, one of the notes I took was relationships. And I think that that is sort of at the core of this, right? Like, yes, there are certain words we should use today, but as you said, Dory, there's trends. So that word might go out of vogue and then you're using the wrong words can get to a place of yes. If the relationship is being built, the relationship is there and you have really have a strong desire. Value of inclusion is genuine. People know. We want to hear from you. If you are planning a lesson or there's something that's on your mind, tell us about it. We want this podcast to be useful to you, our fellow educators. Be sure to subscribe to the Park Avenue Synagogue podcast channel to download and listen to future episodes of How We Talk About. Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.